is these these prophets line up with the book of Ezra. <coughs> In the line of prophets, um, Haggai, Zechariah were doing um, some of their preaching the same year. Zechariah's continued. We assume he was the younger of the two. His preaching continued for some time afterwards until he was killed. And then we have, last of all, will be the prophet Malachi. For those of you who weren't in here the last time, Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. He was the son of Berechiah, the grandson of Edu, the prophet. Um, they were also a priest family. Um, we had, first of all, we looked at, in our first lesson on Zechariah, we looked at his first sermon, just a few verses, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Then we started the visions of Zechariah last time, Zechariah 1, beginning at verse 7 through the end of chapter 6. And I'll just show this again. Amazing picture showing all of the um, cross-references in the Bible. Just amazing to see verses that connect to one another. And I'm just assuming that the preacher who made this chart didn't even get them all. So I'm assuming there are probably more than are there. Because just as soon as we think we've exhausted our study of the scriptures, we go back and we find something else again. So, But it's just amazing seeing how... The scriptures connect to one another. And in order to understand these prophecies, or, well, these visions, which were um, prophecies that um, in order to really understand them, we need to connect scripture with scripture. Um, let's do a quick catch up. The vision of the red horse was the first one, Zechariah 1, 7 through 17. This uh, vision was about restoration and rebuilding, that God was going to restore his people. They were going to rebuild the temple. In this prophecy, we see God's mercy on his people. The second was the vision of the four horns and four carpenters or four craftsmen. In this, there were the four, four horns, which represented authority and power, victory, um, and there were the four carpenters. The four horns were the nations who scattered Judah, um, Israel, and Jerusalem, and they were going to be destroyed, the prophet said. And of course, if we look at history, that would seem to be talking about Assyria, Babylon, Media, and Persia, because it was these four nations who had displaced both the northern and southern kingdoms. <clears throat> In this vision, we see God's judgment. The third vision, Zechariah 2, 1 through 13, we have the vision of the surveyor. Um, in this, we see God's protection over what he calls Israel here, or the Jewish people, the apple of his eye. In it, we see God's protection over his people. Then we have the vision of Joshua, the high priest, in chapter 3. We saw a cleansing for God's priest and the land. <clears throat> also, we see the nation was brought back to produce the Messiah. We see three titles given of the Messiah in this vision. Number one, he's referred to as my servant. Uh, sorry, number one, my servant. Number two, the branch. Number three, the stone. And in this one, we see God's grace. That God's grace was poured out to bring salvation 
to his people. And so this brings us to the next vision in chapter 4, and we sort of mentioned this in passing at the end. He sees um, the golden candlesticks, and he sees two olive trees beside them. Um, And of course, it was the oil of the olive tree that would produce um, the fuel for the light. And so um, he sees this candlestick, he sees the trees on either side of the candlestick. And he says in chapter 4 at the end of verse 6, he says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So the work that God had brought them back to do was not going to be done by their own strength, by their own power, by their own might. It was going to be done by the power of God. It was going to be by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is true still today, that that God's work is done by the power of his Spirit. And it's interesting, this is not the only place in the book of Zechariah that the work of the Holy Spirit is mentioned. We'll see that again later. If you look down at verse number 9, though, he says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. Zerubbabel was the governor. He was the political leader that was sent back to accomplish the rebuilding of the house. In verse 10, he says, For who hath despised the day of small things? Um, The Petties are going to sing a song this morning for pastor's anniversary. Little is much when God is in it. And this verse makes me think of that. Who hath despised the day of small things? We all like to be involved in big things, right? That's human nature. Um, But God asked the question here through Zechariah, who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. So in this, we see that what the spirit begins, he finishes. And then through the eyes of the Lord here, running to and fro throughout the whole earth. In this, we see God's omniscience. God's omniscience. Then we have the vision of the flying scroll. Isn't that fun, a flying scroll? Um, In chapter 5, beginning at verse number 1, he deals with this. Um, The point of this seems to be that God, God's word rather, will judge. God will use his word to bring judgment. Um, it'll bring truth to light. God's word will expose sin. Look at verse number three. This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. Um, verse number four, he says, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief. Um, Anyway, it was going to go forth. It was going to go into the very house of the wicked. It was going to expose them. God's word was going to judge um, sin. It was going to expose their sin. Of course, John 17, 17, what is truth? Jesus said, thy word is truth. Hebrews 4, 
uh, 12 through 13, the word of God is sharp and powerful. It's a sword that cuts through. It's a divider uh, of... Um, divider of soul and spirit. Thank you. Um, but it, what does it do? It exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart. So God's word digs deep and um, it exposes what's really in our hearts. Next, we have the vision of the woman in the basket. This one to me is kind of a funny vision because he sees a basket and then he sees a woman sitting in the basket and then there's two handles to the basket and these two um, creatures fly up. There are two angels with wings and everything and they come over and they pick up the basket and they fly off um, and carry the woman away. You study this out and it's about wickedness being removed, that God was going to remove sin, <clears throat> wickedness from his people. In it, we see God's holiness, that God is a holy God. He has to deal with sin. And of course, as we see these um, visions progressing, we're coming to the point of um, the coronation of the Messiah talking about the time where Jesus will be placed on the throne in Jerusalem. Um, the millennial reign of Christ is what we're heading toward in these visions. And what's God going to do first? If you read end time prophecy, revelation, what do you see God doing? He deals with wickedness. He deals with sin. There's a purifying, there's a cleansing, and then he will set up his kingdom. And that's this whole idea here of the woman in the basket, that God's going to take sin and he's going to take it away from his people. Then we have the vision of the four chariots in chapter 6, um, beginning at verse <clears throat> number 1. He mentions here the north country, the south. Then he mentions to and fro throughout the whole earth. And of course, this is about the judgment of God um, being brought before the millennial reign of Christ. In this, we see God's judgment. This also lines, seems to line up with the four horsemen of the apocalypse from the book of Revelation. In this case, it's chariots um, being drawn by horses, each of this different color, but um, it's similar to what we read about in the book of Revelation. And then we have the conclusion of the visions in chapter 6, beginning at verse number 9. And the conclusion comes <clears throat> at the coronation of the high priest, Jeshua, or Joshua, which is interesting because do you coronate a priest? A priest doesn't normally receive a crown. There's not a coronation for a priest, yet this is a unique priest. Um, Joshua here represents the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> yes, the same name. Um, Joshua, Jehovah saves. Um, Jesus, <clears throat> we have it. Um, Savior. And it's funny because, I don't know, there's these words that pop up in Christianity from time to time, and it becomes this way of being able to sound really spiritual and feel really spiritual. And one that is popular today 
is um, people getting upset if you call Jesus, Jesus. Yeshua is his name. And so people get really mad. Funny thing is, I don't hear anybody mad at the Spanish community because they call him Jesus. It's a snooty English thing that we're going to... Anyway, whether you call him Yeshua or Jeshua or Joshua or Jesus or Jesus um, or Isus, um, he is Jesus. He is Savior. Um, And anytime somebody gets hung up on something like that, when we have a whole Bible that gives us his name, um, anyway, when somebody gets hung up on little terminology like that, um, I generally tend to start steering away from the Christian or the preacher or whatever, because um, anyway, it's real easy to start straining at gnats and trying to swallow camels. And Anyway, next thing we're going to be talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a needle. But... So all those things become a distraction to pull us away from the most important, which is we're talking about Jesus here, the coronation of Christ. In this one, we see Christ's royalty. I wish we had time to settle here and talk about this, but we need to keep moving. Um, But I like what one preacher said about um, the coronation here. He said, this coronation culminates the series of eight visions with the climax of history, the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, in this, we see the statement that he, Joshua, will rebuild the temple. And if we look at Isaiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, um, compare all of these scriptures, we start seeing that there is someone who will rebuild one day after the destruction of the great whore Babylon in the book of Revelation, there will be a rebuilding of the temple, and that will be led by Jesus Christ himself. A grand, glorious, beautiful temple in Jerusalem. Um, Temple worship will be reestablished, no longer to picture what Jesus will do on the cross, but now to remember and commemorate what he did do, past tense, on the cross. Um, What an awesome time that will be on this earth. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? So, we have here Christ's royalty. Then we have another date given. Then he says, in the fourth year of Darius's reign, so somewhere around 518 BC, we have this next section of scripture. So, two years, some two years after the visions, um, Here comes Zechariah again with a series of messages. Chapter 7 and 8 give these messages. The first one is a question. He said, you've been fasting these 70 years. You've had twice a year that you were fasting. Um, But the question was, who are you really fasting for? I think that's a good question for us. When we pray, who are we praying for? When we read our Bibles, who are we reading for? When we do service to God, when we sing in church, who are we singing for? Whatever we do in religious service, why are we doing it? Are we doing it for us? Are we doing it for the Lord? Then he talks about when you sit down to eat, all these things. Anyway, then he's just very clear. You were doing all of this for yourself. This was not about me. 
I mean, can't we do that? Don't we do that sometimes? You know, we, we sin, <clears throat> we come to God in repentance, we ask his forgiveness, and uh, we just start trying to live holy lives for God again. Are we really doing it for God, or are we trying to do it to make us look better? Are we doing it to make us feel better? Are we doing it because we think maybe it will pacify God and he won't be mad at us anymore? <clears throat> There's some theological problems with that last statement, but nonetheless, it's, some, it's often we can be, what we do can become about us. And so he deals with this. Then he brings a second message, message I just entitled it here, The Sharp Stone. <clears throat> and I want us to look at this for just a couple minutes um, with the rest of our time this morning. The message here of the sharp stone, beginning in verse number eight, and the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken, and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears, that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore is come to pass that as he cried, and they would not hear. So they cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they would not Thus the land was desolate after them that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. <clears throat> so let's look at this message for a few minutes. Number one, we see the compassion of God here. The compassion of God. And what, why would I call this the compassion of God? Well, look what he calls on the people to do. He deals with their treatment of one another and of others, not just their fellow Jews. First of all, he says, execute to, his, to their brothers, to fellow Jews. How were they supposed to do? He gives them three things. Number one, he says, execute true judgment. Why would he have them do this? Because he is a God of compassion. He wanted his people, the Jewish people, and today the church, his people, he wants us to reflect himself. So the first thing he calls for here, he says, execute true judgment. He wants justice here. Treat one another justly. Number two, he calls for mercy and compassion and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. So it is a calling to mercy, compassion. Look over 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. 1 Peter 3, 8. We're going to make some applications to us today. This is very clear to the Jewish people. You treat one another with justice, show mercy and compassion on one another. But I want us to see this morning, this is not just for them, but these things apply to the church as well. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 8. Finally, be ye of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as what? Brethren, isn't that interesting? He used the same term for the Jews, telling them, treat one another with mercy and compassion. 
as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 17. <clears throat> but whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If we have the love of God dwelling in us as a response of our God's love and our God's compassion, we should have compassion. We should have love on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I think about what the, pro the prophets had told the northern and southern kingdoms, as we've studied Amos, as we've studied Joel, as we've studied all these prophets, and they talked about how they treated and mistreated one another. God had, was calling for his people to be the most loving, the most merciful, the most compassionate people on earth. Did they follow that? Well, we see in the minor prophets that the Jewish people, but that was one reason why they went into captivity, the, their mistreatment of one another. Their mistreatment of God, but they're also their mistreatment of <clears throat> one another. And I think we ought to bring this home and realize that as Christians, we should be the most compassionate, the most merciful, the most loving people on the face of the earth. We should be like the missionary that I was thinking about this week, elderly missionary. He died a couple years ago, I found out recently. First missionary I went and um, served with in the Philippines when I was 16 years old, Brother Don Newsom, he was mistaken one time as for God. A little kid thought he was God. He had gone back up into the mountains, and um, his love, his compassion, but then one key little thing, um, he brought a generator with him. They had never seen electricity before. They had never seen light bulbs. Well, this little girl came to the understanding that in the beginning, God created light. Well, the missionary cranks up that generator. The lights come on. And um, later they tried to get her to come back to church after he went back down to his home and she wouldn't come. And finally she insisted, I won't go back to church till God is there. And they just could not understand why she didn't think God was at church. Anyway, they finally realized she's talking about the missionary. She'd never seen a white man before either. And so anyway, he had to make a special trip back up into the mountains. I don't know how many days it was to her village. It was more than one day's walk. And he walked back up into the mountains to explain to the little girl he was not God. He was just his messenger. And, but, you know, I was thinking about it this week. That's the lost world should mistake us for God. We should have so much love, so much compassion that they see Jesus Christ when they see us. Then there's a third thing at the end of verse 10. Um, he brings back their brethren again. He said, let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So they were not to devise plans of evil, of hurt, injury, wickedness. Um, and it seems here, he's talking about doing wrong. Don't seek, don't plan wrong against your brothers. So this was their treatment of fellow Jews that he had given them instructions for. And then secondly, look who he deals with. He deals with fatherless, the widow, the stranger, the poor. He says, oppress not. 
Oppress not. That word literally means to um, put pressure on or to press press upon, to defraud, to violate. He said, don't do wrong to this list of people. Number one, the widow. In Exodus 22 and verse 22, he had given them warning on how to treat widows and the fatherless. Instructions were given in James chapter 126 for the church. This is, what, what is religion? Pure religion before God and undefiled is this, that ye visit the widows and fatherless. And so um, it's funny, if we instantly start jumping in and go, well, well, but, but the New Testament specifies that the widows must be widows indeed. If the first thing we start doing is going through all the details of what a widow is supposed to be, we don't have the heart of the father. Yes, there were instructions given, and when we get down to it, to the administration of the church and how we're to care for widows, yes, there are some instructions given. But the first thing that comes into our heart should be to care for widows, period. To care for the fatherless. And then he says, the stranger. And this is interesting because in Exodus twenty-two, twenty-one, and 23 and verse number 9, the law of God gives instructions on how to treat strangers. And then he says, remembering that you were once strangers in Egypt. He even tells them, I believe it's in 23.9, he says, you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. So a question to us would be, how do we treat strangers? What's a stranger? A stranger he's talking about here is a foreigner, somebody who shows up that we don't know. I mean, a foreigner could be somebody from Louisiana. When Laura and I um, first met at school, um, there was a a verse, a a rhema that God gave her. um, After I left, she went up to her room and cried. Well, y'all know Laura. She doesn't hardly ever cry. And she went up to her room and cried. She thought that was weird. And then she opened her Bible and she started reading. And God said, I bring you a man from a far country. And she thought, what could be further than Louisiana? And, um, but a stranger, our treatment of strangers, our treatment of foreigners, God really was convicting my heart about this a number of years back. And then I went to the Philippines where I was a stranger, a foreigner. Um, I ended up in this village one night to go preach at a um, at a missions conference. And um, when I got there, my buddy and I that was traveling with me, when we got there, um, we got on the street corner. Our instructions to the church had not been very clear. And we got off the jeepney and could not find the church. So we started asking people on the street, and no one would answer me. Every one of them acted like they didn't speak English. And um, they acted very strange toward us, literally like cold-shouldering us. It was very uncomfortable. Anyway, finally somebody from, that was on their way to the missions conference found us and um, led us to the church. We got there. I preached. Um, afterwards, the preacher got up. Come to find out, the preacher that preached after me um, doesn't like Americans. So he gets up and he starts speaking in Elongo. And I was sitting with a bunch of elderly preachers that were all friends of my dad's. And they were all native pastors. And 
the preacher speaking in a longo. I can't understand anything he's saying, but I know something's odd because everybody in the room is just laughing hysterically, except for my dad's friends. And this keeps going and keeps going, and then I look up and I see the dean of the Bible college where I was teaching. She starts motioning me to come out. I just started telling her, no, man, I want to stay. I want to stay for his sermon. I felt like it was courteous. You know, I had preached. He sat through mine, so I'm going to sit through his, even though I have no clue what he's saying. Anyway, she got very stern that I was to leave and come with her right now. So I got up, left. She wouldn't tell me what was going on. She just hung her head. Finally, she acknowledged that something wasn't right and that the preacher was making fun of me or Americans in general, I never quite understood, but I got why my dad's friends didn't think he was funny. I had been mistreated by people on the street, and then I got, get into the church, and I'm mocked by the pastor from the pulpit and laughed at by or for half the congregation. The Lord reminded me of these verses from Exodus 22 and 23, the treatment of strangers. And the Holy Spirit just convicted my heart. When you're in America and you pass a stranger on the street, how do you treat them? Mm. Somebody comes up to you in Walmart and they think you work there. And all they speak is Spanish. How do you treat them? It was convicting. Because finally, I was a stranger in a foreign country that didn't know their language. I finally, for the first time in my American life, knew the heart of a stranger. And God said, see how you treat them as Christians is important. Anyway, that was a really um, life-changing night for me. So he deals with how they treat the, the stranger. Then he deals with how they treat the poor. He talks about this in the law, Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. But Israel refused to hear him. Didn't mean to click that. Here we see the callousness of Judah. And real quickly, as we bring this to a close, look at what Israel had done. But they refused to hearken. They pulled away the shoulder. You ever gone up to touch somebody on the shoulder and they pull away? It's the picture of a kid who's mad at their parent. You know, the parent walks over and they go to say something and you know there's something wrong with you and your kid when you go to reach for their shoulder and they pull it away. Or you go to hug them and boy, they try to um, not hug you back. Um, There was a pulling away from God and they stopped their ears. You ever had a little kid do that? They just cover their ears so that they cannot hear what the instructions are that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant, stone. This is a hard, a sharp stone. It's like a diamond that is cut in order to cut. It's going to make a very sharp tip. And he said, this is what they had done. Now notice, this is a deliberate action. They made their hearts like this. They were not just hard hearts, but they were hearts that were now dangerous. They were sharpened. Their hearts were made for cutting. God intended them to have soft hearts, compassionate hearts, merciful hearts. Their hearts had become hardened. They had become the enemies of one another. They had made themselves the enemies of God. Now, why did they harden their heart like this? Lest they should hear the law 
and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent. In his spirit, here's the word spirit again. God had sent his law. He had sent his word by the Holy Spirit. Who did the Holy Spirit give the word to? The former prophets. He's talking about Amos. He's talking about Joel. He's talking about all these prophets who had come before the Babylonian captivity. The Holy Spirit came on these men and brought the word through them, and yet you rejected it. And then here we have the consequences of rejection. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. First of all, there was a great wrath from the Lord. And then he said, um, number two in verse 13, when they started crying out to God, they had not listened to him when he cried to them through his prophets, and he was not going to listen to them now when they're praying and crying out to him for help. They were going to still go into captivity. And of course, that had happened. Verse 14, but I scattered them with a whirlwind. And then fourth, here he see, we see at the end of this, um, they laid the pleasant land desolate. So their land became a desolation. We don't have time to look these up, but I encourage you to read Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22, as well as 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel 15, we'll end here. God is dealing with Saul through the prophet Samuel. Saul has sinned against God. He was disobedient to the Lord. And Samuel the prophet told him, he said, because you rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. So when, when the word of God is rejected, there's a rejection of God toward that person. Um, we see it here in Zechariah with the nation of Israel and nations of Israel and Judah. We see it with King Saul. So what does that do for us? I want to be on God's side, and I want him on my side. I know I'm saved. Positionally, I am in Christ, and I always will be. But how is my walk? How are my actions? Are they walking in obedience to God? Am I really hearing God, or when his Holy Spirit speaks, do I pull my shoulder back? Do I harden my heart so that I don't have to be under conviction when God speaks to me? when God deals with me. And for all of us, that should be a regular thing that God deals with us. We read our Bible, we get under conviction about something, something we should be doing, something we shouldn't be doing, um, whatever it is that God deals with us. Maybe it's some motive of our heart. We're doing the right thing, but we're not doing it for the right reason. Like he dealt with in his first message about fasting. But whatever the case, Let's make sure that we are in line with God, that we have the heart of the Father, a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy, a heart of love. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has. Lord, something you've spoken so many years ago for your people, and yet it applies to us today as your Christian people. Lord, we thank you that um, you have called us as, as the church, you have made us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Lord, I pray that we would show forth your praises. Lord, that you'd work in our hearts, that you'd mold us to, 
be in your image. Lord, that we would show your mercy, your compassion, your loving kindness this week to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to the lost world around us, to strangers, to the poor, the widows and the fatherless. Lord, that you would help us to reach out and share your love, to give your gospel. Give a cup of cold water. Lord, I pray that you would work through us. Pray that you'd speak to us now as we go into the preaching hall. In Christ's name we pray.